Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I am a surgeon. I am used to identifying wounds, treating wounds, and watching them heal. Imagine my dismay when I recognized I had my own deep emotional wounds that had not healed because, at least in part, I had never looked at them. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. And the words you have just heard are from the author of Finding Heart in Art, a surgeon's renaissance approach to healing modern medical burnout. And that person is Dr. Sean C. Jones. Dr. Jones, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you. It's good to be with you today. Dr. Sean C. Jones is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat doctor. He is a head and neck surgeon trained in robotic surgery. He is the founding member of his specialty group, Purchase ENT, which he began in 1995. There are many other hats that he wears, but today he is here to talk to us about his latest book, You Heard Me Reading from the Beginning of It, just a few moments ago. Dr. Jones, when people think about surgeons, when people think about medical personnel, there's often the sense that they don't have any problems, that everything is good, and their lives are perfect. But in just those few words that I quoted from the beginning of Finding Heart in Art, you make it clear that that was not your experience at all. Well, I think in general that there is a a facade, if you will, that that we are encouraged uh, in the past or have been encouraged in the past to keep up in medicine that we are perfect and, and that we do perfect work. And certainly we all aspire to do great work, but I think not recognizing your humanity comes at a cost. And for me, that cost was a, a an emotional numbness that enveloped me and uh, began to rob me of, of my joy in, in my work and not just my professional life, but also so my personal life. And so that, that facade sometimes that, uh, that we hold up, certainly that I held up for a while, comes at great, great professional and personal cost. And that, that syndrome or symptoms, constellation of symptoms that's known as burnout can be the consequence of not handling your professional life and to a degree your personal life in, in, a, in a healthier way. Well, let's kind of start at the beginning. You just used the word burnout. Tell me what burnout actually means. What does it look like? Well, a person experiences burnout through three primary uh, mechanisms or symptoms, if you will, and that is uh, a an emotional exhaustion, uh, 
depersonalization and a, a loss of satisfaction or pro- professional fulfillment at work. And it is technically work-related stress as defined by Christine Maslach and Michael Leiter. And in a, in a sense, each one of those is a parameter around which you can start to recognize yourself succumbing to burnout. You know, when you no longer feel as though you can connect with people uh, in your profession, when seeing another patient seems like it's the last thing in the world you'd want to do, when you don't feel like what you're doing has meaning, which gives you a loss of satisfaction in your work. You know, medicine is deep and deep fundamental meaning. It's hard to imagine how being a physician, you could feel as though you're not making a difference, but that's what happens. And if a physician feels that way, particularly, or a nurse or even firefighters, policemen, all the uh, helping professions can experience that, then, you know, you're at, at great risk for, for burnout. When, a moment ago, you mentioned the term depersonalization. For those who aren't quite sure what that means, can you explain it? So that's treating people as though, in a sense, they were objects as opposed to human beings. And um, it may be as simple as referring to a patient as the gallbladder in room 357 as opposed to Mrs. Jones, who had her gallbladder taken out yesterday. What you describe for people listening who were not part of the medical profession, but as we all do rely on the medical profession at various points of our lives, it sounds kind of unnerving. Um, Is this something that is common in the profession? Is this something that's unique? What do you want people to realize? In general, the average rates of burnout for CEOs and other professions are in the 30% range, 30 to 34%, depending on the the studies that you read. Recent studies done uh, among physicians indicate that the burnout rate is as high as 54% on average. It varies a little bit by specialty. Some of the specialties are hit a little bit harder. But I think it is really important uh, for people to recognize because there's also evidence that when uh, physicians or hospital systems or other uh, types of organizations are hit by burnout, it, it affects the quality of the care that's delivered because obviously a depersonalized, emotionally exhausted physician who doesn't feel as though the work they are doing is mattering has a higher rate, you would infer, of, of errors that occur. So it's really important from a system standpoint to recognize, number one, that it is work-related stress that leads to burnout, although individual resilience is a independent variable in that equation, that it's the stress of the work that causes it. And so there are things that can be done to try to mitigate that from an organizational level. And also, I think it's important to recognize it's not a a moral or a professional failure of the individual that results in it. When over 50% of the physicians in the United States are experiencing symptoms of burnout, it is a system-related problem. It's not that we're admitting the wrong people to medical school, and there's actually evidence to 
to support that contention. And, you know, I would suggest that if you're experiencing burnout, part of what goes into that um, is the fact that you very much care about what it is you're doing and you're very connected and committed to what you're doing. So when these kinds of feelings begin to occur, it's, it's quite unnerving for the individual. Well, I think that's a very good point that, um, in essence, there's also data that suggests that the more compassionate that you are as an individual, the higher your risk of burnout, because you almost get to a point where you reach compassion fatigue. You've cared so much, and it begins to feel as though you're not able to make the difference you would like to make or that you feel like you need to make in individual patients' lives. And so that disconnect between who you are as an individual and what you feel called to do and your inability to fulfill that in your own mind can lead to burnout. As we close out just this first portion of our conversation, I'm going to return again to finding heart in art and quote you saying, my book is not only about the healing journey and how an individual can respond to their emotions, but it's also about looking at the workplace and finding ways to facilitate structural change within organizations to promote wellness and healing, which is so much of what you've just said. But I'd like to dive into that a bit more when we return. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. I'm having a conversation with Dr. Sean C. Jones. He is the author of Finding Heart in Art, a surgeon's renaissance approach to healing modern medical burnout. We'll be back in just a moment. Dr. Jones, uh, one of the the points that you make, which we all, I think, know but don't really think about, um, is that physicians see a lot of ugliness every day. And that, of course, is very true. Your, Your job, part of your job, is to heal that ugliness that you see every day. So while on the one hand, we all kind of assume that, and I think understand that that takes its toll. It's interesting when we hear the the sort of stories and the jokes about med school and about uh, being a, a, a clinician that, you know, you work 10 hours, you work 12 hours, you haven't slept in two days. And it's kind of like an anticipated experience and a joke, particularly when you're going through med school. What are your thoughts about that sort of disconnect for a lot of folks? The thing that I think is interesting is that in many respects, it it for years has been worn as a badge of honor, much like a Navy SEAL would be able to withstand the onset of hypothermia beyond which most human beings would would cower and and have to leave the water. We have made physicians in such a sense uh, that they deny their own needs to their own detriment. And so I think 
to some degree, I see that beginning to change in medical school and residency with the regulation of work hours, although regulating the work hours is probably the, the easiest to manage because it's an objective thing that can be identified and, and followed closely. My son is a third-year medical student, and, and I've seen him you know, have some of these changes that never would have happened when I was going through that I think are positive, but we need to make the changes in an interpersonal way in how students and residents and fellows are treated as they're trained and how they're encouraged to incorporate their own well-being programs into their training. When you say that there's a regulation in work hours, how is it specifically, how is it different from when you were in training? Well, probably the most physically demanding week I recall in residency was one where I was technically on call every other night uh, for a stretch of, of several months. And during one week, we kept having patients need our attention on our days off to the point where during that week, I was out of the hospital for a total of like eight hours for the whole week. Oh, my. Now, I did sleep some at the hospital when I was was even on call, but the point was for that seven-day stretch to be out of the hospital for eight hours, that, that's beyond what really is reasonably uh, to be expected of an individual, I think, in any training program. And, and that has changed to the point where, you know, people are told to go home and they've structured the teams and the rotations in such a way that allows them to facilitate on-off periods that are more uh, appropriate, I think. The subtitle of your book, as I think you probably know, speaks to the uh, experience of, of or, or the existence of Renaissance art and how it is can be a, a healing experience. I, I, I wonder how you first became aware that you yourself were dealing with burnout and then sort of walk us through the movement to a, a true appreciation of art. Well, one of the things I think that uh, for me was very interesting was the disorienting nature of the, the syndrome of burnout, and that is I didn't realize I was succumbing to it. It sort of happened so insidiously and mm. slowly that I didn't recognize it, and I think that's not particularly uncommon. Um, it was really my wife who, who one day said, you know, basically, you're emotionally numb. You're not here, um, and so in the process of, of reaching out for and obtaining professional help. Uh, I underwent six weeks of outpatient intensive psychotherapy, uh, took six weeks off work. That process actually helped me get in touch with who I was as a human being again and, uh, and my emotional nature. And it was really, I think, in some respects, serendipitous that I began to recognize as I visited certain museums and was on vacation that art held an affinity to me in allowing me to express my emotions in a way and be in touch with them that was seemed easier than finding them perhaps on my own, that I was able to put myself in a painting or in a place and recognize what was going on in my internal environment, perhaps a little bit 
more easily than if I were just talking about my feelings without that third thing, which was the piece of art. And so I, it, it occurred to me that it, it was really the beauty that touched me. And so when you start investigating art therapy and, and the, the beauty aspect of it, it isn't necessarily ideal beauty, although that may be part of it. It's about that ugliness you talked about before and how it affects us as, as human beings, even though we become inured to it and we become used to it as physicians, it still affects us and to recognize that and, and to have some way of putting beauty back into our life, whether it's through music or art, uh, literature, hiking, nature, all the things that we think of as the humanities in a way that, that tend to make us more human. I think it restores us in a way that helps us be more resilient as individuals. When you say that you were in intensive um, outpatient psychotherapy, what did that mean? Well, outpatient psychotherapy, most people would think of as being, you know, I went to a session this week and I went next week and, right. and this was six to eight hours a day for six weeks. That's intensive. Some was, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, some was group therapy and, and a lot of this is detailed in the book in a way. Um, uh, some of my experiences there and what happened and, and there are also parts of it that help an individual kind of process their own feelings and to look at themselves in a different way. Things that I learned while I was in treatment that helped me to, I think, stay well. And in fact, you you make specific recommendations uh, that you encourage the reader to really think about and consider uh, and and spend some time considering, which, of course, as we know, uh, certainly for people in uh, clinical professions, time for you is, as we've been saying, is not often something that is celebrated or supported. You said something um, in Finding Heart in Art that actually surprised me, but when I thought about it, 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 it made sense. You indicated that there is increasing evidence that burnout and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, may be linked. Can you say more about that? Well, I think... There's evidence from a study of firefighters, I believe in Israel, as well as a couple of studies with physicians that um, the the thing that soldiers experience about the moral injury that occurs in war is very similar to what happens to a physician when he is unable to accomplish his task, especially when the the you accomplish that task is impeded as a result of a bureaucratic regulation or organizational structure, it creates a moral injury within the physician because of the inability to do what he feels like is the best for his patient, which he has been called to do. When you have that mismatch between who I am as a person, what I've been called to do as a professional, and the fact that I cannot do that as a result of the structure which I'm in, that's the work-related stress that results in moral injury that leads to post-traumatic stress disorder. And that is starting to be written about, not just in, in terms of soldiers returning from combat, but physicians who suffer burnout as well. Do you think as an awareness of that, 
uh, of the connection grows, uh, that there will be massive structural changes. I mean, I think about the impact of insurance companies on the uh, and and other kinds of health-related companies, uh, the impact in terms of how much time you can spend with a patient, how many patients you're required to see in a day. Do you think that those things will change as the connection between burnout and post-traumatic stress become more um, known and accepted throughout the community? I certainly hope so, and I think there's evidence to suggest that those changes are beginning to occur. There is a recalcitrance on the part of uh, large organizations to look at physicians as a workforce that is just there to do their bidding, and when you think about the types of changes that may be necessary to accomplish making the healthcare industry a joyful, great place to work. Some of those things may take some pretty radical changes. And and I believe it's going to take physician leaders who get interested and passionate about wanting to implement change at a ground roots level, because there are so many arms to this octopus, if you will. There's, you know, the Center for uh, Medicaid, Medicare Services, there's um, the federal bureaucracy and in terms of payment, there's insurance companies, there's hospital systems, there's regulatory agencies such as Joint Commission, universities. It, so it isn't just like you have one overarching organization that you could go to and say, hey, we need to change this. This thing has tentacles that go in a lot of different directions that are it's going to require some real concerted effort on behalf of a lot of people and a lot of organizations. Dr. Jones, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like for you to talk more specifically about the art that touched you so deeply. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. We will be back in just a moment, so you stay where you are. Dr. Jones, tell us about your experience of art. I know there were some pieces in particular that really struck you in a, in a very deep and, and emotional way. Yes. Yeah, so one of the pieces that is in the painting that, that meant a lot to me uh, was uh, Jacobo Bassano's The Good Samaritan. And I think part of that is because the Good Samaritan has become a metaphor for even laws within our system that protect people who want to do something good to someone who's injured in a car accident, for example. And it speaks to someone who goes out of their way to care for a human being who is in a situation through no fault of their own that results in their injury. And even though not knowing them and even as a as an indication of the injured party's 
enmity towards Samaritan people, he nevertheless takes his time, his money, his resources, and cares for that human being and, and does that in a way that restores him to health. That's a picture in essence of what a physician uh, wants and tries to do on a daily basis uh, is to take those people who are in his path and, and have been either injured or become ill and to do what's best for them and to an extent to ignore even his own uh, well-being in, in order to do that. And so that, that painting, which is a classic that hangs in Trafalgar Square, uh, National Gallery of Art in London, uh, touched me deeply when I first saw it. Number one, because it's just an absolutely stunning, beautiful piece of Renaissance art. And then the story, as it was told uh, by Jesus, also calls us to the better part of our human nature to help others. And so it, for me, it, it spoke to my life as a doctor. It spoke to uh, me in terms of my uh, journey uh, among the, the thieves and the robbers and those who had helped me to recover myself so that I can in turn go help others. And that's in essence, what we all want is to care for healthcare providers in such a way and have them care for themselves in such a way that they are able to go do what they were called to do, which is to be the people in society that care for the health of others. You point out the importance, as you've said uh, earlier, about having some sort of creative, artistic part of your life attended to. And you also talk about spirituality and mindfulness as being essential uh, for a, a healthy individual. One of the things that you say uh, towards the end of uh, your book is you ask the specific question, how do you plan on incorporating beauty or creativity into your life? Is that a question that you would like everyone to walk away with who's listening to our conversation and who will read your book? I think so. I think you have to be intentional about how you do that because it's easy to have other things that are seemingly more important crowd out the truly deeply personal, spiritual integrative things in our lives. And Stephen Covey spoke about that in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, about how we need to take time to sharpen the saw. And so I think those things are really fundamentally important and that we need to ask those questions regularly about how we're filling our reservoir, because I cannot give what I do not have. And the most important thing I can give as a physician or as a human being is myself. And if I don't, if I'm not in touch with who I am and my true self, then it's very difficult. It's not impossible for me to give that. Dr. Jones, how does one get more information about you and what you're doing in your writings? They can go to my website, drshawncjones.com, or they can follow me on Twitter at Sean C. Jones, MD, and there are um, ways to uh, get in touch with me uh, there, as well as uh, a newsletter that I that I send out. And that's Sean S H A W N. 
C Jones, J O N E S dot com. Terrific. Thank you so much. Uh, for your time today, Doctor, and for this very thoughtful uh, document uh, that you have created that I'm going to encourage everybody who's in any sort of administrative anything to read across all fields because it is so important. Thank you again, Dr. Sean C. Jones. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available on demand by going to mindtalk.org. That's mindtalk.org. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk, so email me at pamela at mindtalk.org. Again, that's mindtalk.org. LK.org. And when you go to the Mind Talk website, be sure to sign up for the weekly program guide as well as for the free weekly giveaway. And remember always if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.